Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We're a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. If you'd like to learn more about us, the facility we're building designed for the energizing and growth of men, or would like to financially partner with us in our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. All right, guys. Well, thanks for, uh, we had some really in, uh, good discussions tonight. Got, it, it, there was just a lot of emotion. There was a lot of deep discussion. There's a lot of go- things going on in guys' lives. And this story of David really starts poking at some stuff for all of us, you know. There's some places in here that hurt for us, guys. So it's really cool to watch you gather around and help each other push through some of these issues and start to pull them, pull them apart and start looking at yourself a little more deeply. So thanks for that work. Yeah, I've managed hundreds of people over my career. Uh, I've had a 33-year career. Uh, when you hire employees, it's an interesting thing. You've got to give people feedback at some point and coach and help them come along so they can do the work that, the, that you need them to do at a high level. And I found that people seem to drop into two camps when you do performance discussions. One group uh, wants to hear the information, but they don't want to do anything with it. And then the other group wants to hear the information, and they want more feedback, and they want to grow. At Procter & Gamble, my first job as an engineer in an R&D department that, uh, right out of college, we had to wear suits and ties every day to work. Kind of weird. And in an R&D department, you're wearing a suit and tie. I thought that was weird. So I went and talked to my division director and said, hey, can we have a casual day once in a while, like maybe casual Friday? He said, Bill, I think that's a great idea. Maybe you'll be more creative. Uh, I said, I think it would help me a lot. So, and... Uh, I remember one of my managers after the first Friday where we had that day grabbed me the next day and he said, hey, Bill, that follow the fridge sweatshirt was an interesting choice for casual Friday. I was living in Chicago before I came there and Refrigerator Perry was a rock star, man. So I had a big sweatshirt that said, follow the fridge, man. I'm like, heck yeah, bears, man. And uh, so this guy sat me down and he said, Bill, you know, your clothes can make a statement or your work, your, or your work and ideas can make a statement. Which one do you think is better. And I said, I think I'm going to choose my ideas and my words. And I changed my clothing choices after that. It was really good counsel for me. I remember in 1992 attempting my fir- or attending my first Promise Keepers event in Colorado. Bill McCartney got up to talk about his failures as a husband. And I remember this story vividly. He said, an old pastor looked at his wife And then looked at him and said, I can see the countenance of your wife in her eyes. She's not doing well. And he cried, Bill McCartney did, as he confessed his failure as a husband and as a father because he was too busy being a head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. It was the first time I remember it vividly. It was the first time I knew I had issues as a husband that needed to be addressed. And it was the first time I realized my behavior was evil and I was hurting my wife, not physically, but just emotionally. I'd never had that experience before. I had never had that conscious awareness of the evilness in me and man, did it hit me hard. When was the first time you realized you had the capacity to be an evil man? You know, one of the hardest parts of becoming a Christian is the progressive revelation of yourself. It's painful studying the Bible and realizing how much evil and sin resides in our own hearts. And you know, what's interesting, the more you study, the worse it seems to get. 
Tonight we see David very differently than we did last week, don't we? Last week he looked so incredibly confident in his faith and relied solely on God. But tonight we see him running, hiding, lying, getting angry, and living as an adulterer. But I got to admit, I related a lot more to the David I saw tonight than I did last week. So I'm praying tonight for you guys that as you see some of your failures, you'll be compelled to run towards God instead of hiding and hoping those thoughts will just go away. Join me as we open in prayer. Heavenly Father, this study with David is punishing. It's really revealing. It's really opening my eyes to things about myself I don't like. And I know a lot of these guys are seeing those things as well. But Father, help us not run away, but to you. Help us believe the things that you say, that, you, that when we are afraid of you, you'll send an encampment of your angels around us, that you'll embrace us, that you'll love us, that you'll care for us. Help us believe that. Lord, help us hear you speak to us clearly tonight. Lord, please don't let me get in the way of your voice so these men may hear you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. In 1 Samuel 21, we start to see David run from Saul. David was anointed king somewhere between ages 15 and 19 years old. And he actually became the king at age 30. So we don't have a lot of information about how long he was running from Saul. But if you read a lot of the commentaries and piece together the timeline, the speculation is it was about 10 years. In this story tonight, the exile begins with him running to Nob, where these priests resided, which was just a short walk away from where the tabernacle was being held. He tells three lies to the priest there, Ahimelech. And it's because David is afraid and he sees this priest as afraid. The first lie was telling him that the king sent him. The second was asking the priest to keep it secret. And the third was to imply that he had men with him when he was actually alone. He was likely just trying to protect the priest so Saul could not accuse the priest of helping this fugitive David that he was trying to kill. David appears to be experiencing fear though because he asks for something he knows he shouldn't ask for, sacred bread. And then he asks for a sword, which he knows is too big for him. He's handled it before. He would never use it. But he asks anyway. So you're getting some inkling that he's afraid. So this is our first opportunity to see this fragile David that looks a lot like us. He, his fear makes him do what we often do, lie. While David's lies did not kill the priests of Nob, they also didn't save them from being killed either. David could have been fully transparent and explained the source of his fear to the priests. At least the priests could have been fully aware of the danger that they were in at that point. But instead, David said he came to them for the purpose of doing the king's business. So the priests think Saul sent David to them. They are under a lie. Doeg, Saul's servant who happened to be there, went back and lied to Saul about what happened at the meeting. We see David lie again when out of fear he flees to Gath and acts like a crazy man in front of the Philistines. Why David chose to lie and not rely on God at this point is really difficult to understand, especially in light of seeing how he handled Saul and his family and Goliath only, time, only a short time before that. But this is more in line with how most, uh, most of us men respond to our fear, especially when we're hungry. And he was hungry. Fear and hunger are a combination ripe for failure. This is familiar territory for me. It never fails when I have a great moment of faith or a spiritual high point. I seem to fall apart the very next day. 
And lying is often the way I like to avoid conflicting situations. Guys, modern research shows and has proven every single person lies, which of course matches what the Bible says. Everyone is born a sinner. Isn't it interesting? If psychology today says it happens, then it's true. If the Bible says, well, we can't trust that, right? (laughs) People start lying as early as age two. Kyle, would you agree? Yes, Kyle has a girl that's two years old, and she's already starting to feign in that direction. So it's like, how, how, how do they do that? The typical person lies one to two times each day. Teenagers, of course, lie the most. We all know that. (laughs) It's just so obvious, isn't it? But because of these high levels of human interactions, most people get a load of this. Most people hear up to 100 lies a day. Isn't that incredible? A hundred lies a day is is the typical amount of lies we hear. Lying is most often driven by fear, fear of conflict, fear of being hurt, fear of being hurt emotionally, fear of losing something, fear of failing, or fear of being viewed as a failure. We all know what causes fear, and lies are driven by that. But there's something more powerful. Proverbs 6 says, God hates seven things. One of those is lying, and another is a false witness. We see both in this story tonight. The Bible shows us a dramatic consequence of the combination of David and Doeg's lie. Saul unlawfully sentences 85 priests to death, ultimately allowing Doeg to not only kill them, but their families as well. This is one of the most dramatic stories that connects lying to its consequences. The Bible makes it very clear that lying is wrong. Jesus said the devil's native tongue is lying, and he is the father of all lies. God cast the devil out of heaven because he was a liar. The devil lied to Eve, which led to the sins that forced God to cast man out of the garden, introduced death, and required Jesus to die on a cross. All of that came from lying. Lying destroys and opposes everything God loves. Yet most of us hardly even flinch when we exaggerate, omit information, or alter a story. And as we get older, and trust me, this is true, we learn far more sophisticated language skills to present information that always makes us look good and protects our interests. Let me share one example. As a Christian, I'm supposed to do things like pray every day. So when I talk about prayer, I often describe it in ways that make it sound like I do it every day. I don't have to say I do it every day. I just have to describe it with enough detail that people think I do. That's one of my lies that make me look like a Christian around Christians. It's easy to do if you gather enough lingo from other Christians and you study the Bible. I can fake out a lot of people with good Christian behavior. But in the end, it's a lie to others, to myself, and to God. Lying is like jealousy. Men hate admitting it. What are some of your most common ways you use to deceive people? David provides a way out in Psalm 32. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Based on David's example, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the lies we tell every day. Acknowledge that they are sins to God, and then ask God to forgive us. So I got a play for us tonight, guys. It'll be interesting to see who runs it. Let's all agree before we go to bed tonight 
that will ask the Holy Spirit to show us the places where we exaggerated, altered, left out, or simply changed the facts of a story today. Then we will do this. Then, we'll, then when some, something's going to come to your mind, I'm telling you it will, just pray. Just lay in your bed right before you go to bed and say, God, show me where I did that. Just even in the slightest way, show me, and it's going to come to your mind. And when it comes to your mind, confess it as a lie. Speak it out loud. Say, God, what I did in that was a lie. Please forgive me, Lord, and give me the desire to stop telling that story with that altered fact. And you know what I'm saying then. And then tomorrow, change the story to the real story and stop altering it to make you look good. Try it tonight, guys. Let's see who does that. Let's get back together and find out how it, how, what happened to us. Another element of this story was the brutality of murder. The priests and their families that died in Nob were a sobering reminder that God's people are not guaranteed a life, uh, a long life, or a life that just ends by falling asleep. I'm a bit horrified when I read the violence of those times. It was so hard to read that much killing and murder going on. So I started looking for articles. I found Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors to see if this kind of Christian killing that's still going on today, and in fact it is, Look at the, listen to these numbers. Every day, somewhere in the world, 13 Christians are killed. Every single day, somewhere in the world, 13 Christians are killed and 12 churches are attacked. In countries with Islamic laws like Afghanistan, Iran, and Nigeria, or places like North Korea or India, all of which show up on the top 10 most persecuted countries for Christians, where their governments enforce laws that place Christianity in direct opposition to their leaders, Christians are dying at the hands of brutal and hate-filled men like Doag. When we, what, we, what we read in this story tonight has never stopped, and it's escalating at levels we can't possibly imagine. You don't hear about it because our media, who has by every measure tried to remove God from the conscious awareness of all of Americans, never reports these stories but it's going on today, guys, in many, many ways and in huge quantities. Christians are dying at astronomical levels. In all of this killing, God saves a remnant of his followers to carry out his work and provides continuing assurance that his followers, when they die, have hope of eternity with Jesus. This story of the priest murdered by Doeg has both stories of a remnant of one priest who joins David as well as David being rescued by God countless times through messengers, prayers, his friends, Jonathan, and God directly intervening to protect him from the ruthless anger of Saul. God's plan to bring salvation to mankind through the line of David, the line of Judah, Jesus, will not be stopped. This story may make you afraid to die a horrific death. It certainly does to me. But I hope instead you look at the rest of the story in the Bible and see where you end up and where the bad guys end up. There is a very real eternal difference. David knew. Listen to these words in Psalm 52. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And then he talks about the godly man. And he says, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. There is a marked difference, guys. While the, the Bible clearly shows us that our destiny is far different than those who are murdering Christians, I still find myself enjoying the comfort with you guys. This local Christian church feels awfully good, operating with a hidden fear of simply being rejected or ridiculed. I don't share the gospel nearly as much as I should. 
What keeps you hidden in the Christian bubble? Tonight, as we read 1 Samuel 25, we saw God's plan of salvation protected from the anger of a man named Nabal and the anger of David as well. When David was told Nabal would not feed his men, David got mad because he had protected that guy's sheep and his shepherds. David orders his men to strap on their swords. Nabal's wife, Abigail, was used by God to stop David from murdering Nabal and all his men. David's anger, combined with being hungry again, was almost catastrophic. Catching the point on hunger, guys? Yeah, don't get hungry, man. Had Abigail not bought food and an intensely personal apology, David would have murdered a lot of people. Men, our anger is a serious issue. This story is very typical of us. Fearful, angry, hungry men can be incredibly evil. What fires up your anger? And when does it result in hurtful words or even violent actions? Every man needs to be fully aware of what triggers his anger, what conditions make him prone to anger, and what helps him calm down. That's on us, guys. We own those three things. For some men, that's an easy process. For most of us, we cannot get there on our own. We need a few trusted men to help us sort through that. Once we see those triggers, the control mechanisms are a little more obvious. One cause of intense anger for me is when someone tells me I did something wrong and I'm not expecting getting correction. I grew up the fourth child and was constantly being laughed at for making small mistakes. It always made me feel so bad about myself. So today I work on overdrive to get things right. A lot of guys say, boy, heart of a man's so organized and everything's done so well. Yeah, I don't want somebody to tell me it's wrong because it hurts. So I work hard to make it not hurt. It takes very little correction for me to make a change. It took working with a group of my peers in the business community to see how my anger was manifesting itself in me and how that was causing a lot of pain for people who are trying to help me, for employees who work for me. I do my best now when I know correction is coming. So I know that. It's, I'm better in that space. When I know I'm going to get correction, it's easier for me to take correction. When it comes to surprise, I don't do well. So I, I seek out correction. I look for it instead of letting it happen to me because I know I might get angry if I don't. I calm down when I'm angry by talking to my wife. Susie's just really good for me. I can be angry and she can take it and I don't direct it at her anymore. I can just direct it and just say, oh my God, I'm so frustrated. And she takes that and it calms me down and it really helps me because then she affirms me. Hey, it's not you. You're not like that. You're good. It really helps me. So that's my process. That's what I do. That's how I work with that particular issue. But I still get angry. David's anger was leading him to get revenge. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. God had Nabal die soon after his wife told him what, he had, uh, what she did to save his life. God brought justice to a man whose name meant fool. David was spared the guilt and remorse of murder because God moved Abigail in to intervene and Dave listened to Abigail. David thanked Abigail for protecting him from his anger and keeping him from murdering those men. Men, we need to listen to people who are trying to help us with our anger. Men, 
We need to listen to men that are trying to help us with our anger. Who will you ask to help you with your anger this week? The story of Nabal ends with David marrying Abigail and lists a few other women as his wives as well. In Deuteronomy 17, God told Moses to instruct their kings not to take many wives because they would pull them away from him. In Genesis 2, God told man to become one with his wife. Clearly, you can't be one with multiple wives. Scripture is clear. We're called to only marry one woman. David seemed to be unaware of this text or choose to ignore it and follow his culture. This attraction to women will become not good for David. He's going to get hurt by this deeply, and we're going to see that not too far off. I point to this text for a few reasons. First is to continue to rub off the shine David carried last week. Jesus was the only man who lived a sinless life. The rest of us are sinners, including David. And the Bible is so good to help us realize there isn't a single man on this planet who we can follow that will not disappoint us, not one. It's a big mistake to idolize men as role models. It's a big mistake. We are here to help each other follow Jesus and him alone. If a man's pointing you to himself, stop following him. If you're following a man and he's pointing you to Jesus, that's the right guy to follow. Jesus is the guy we follow, not somebody else. The second reason is to bring light to sexuality as a real challenge for most men. Just like David, many Christian men are attracted to women and fight the temptations in their head. Guys, this is real, man. Like, this is real. If you're a guy in this room going, that ain't a problem for me, you're probably the biggest liar in the room. Most men have sexual appetites that are overstimulated by the media, by significant amount of emotional needs, and have ready access to pornography to keep all that on fire. Guys, we have to recognize these forces are real and they are active all the time. It's helpful for me to be honest and call it when I see it in myself. This is not to normalize it by any means, but it's to face the reality and to get around other men who can help me. This is what you got to do. You got to call it out. Man, you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, I've been lusting over that girl, man, and she's on my mind. And you got to look at yourself right in the eyes. If you don't have a mirror, get next to the mirror and look yourself right in the eyes and call it out. I'm lusting over another girl. I'm looking at pornography, man. I got a problem. And this has to stop. This has to stop. Tonight, before you go to bed, call out the textual temptation that you're having in your head and ask God to take it away. David did one thing right every time he failed, and it was to run to God. He ran to God. Just read his Psalms over and over. He runs to God. He runs to God. He tells God what he's feeling and what he's seeing in himself, and he calls it what it is. Call it what it is. Don't hide. And I'll tell you, it really helps to be around other men when a guy comes forth and says, man, I'm having a sexual issue in my life, and it sucks, man. You need to listen and don't normalize it. Don't tell him it's okay. It is not okay. You tell him, dude, you need to stop, man. Like, that's not good. That's bad. But I'm not going to judge you, and I love you, but I'm not going to normalize your behavior. And don't ask me to be, keep track of your pornography. I don't want to be on your Covenant Eyes website, man. No, thank you. Just stop looking at that crap. But don't come to me and normalize your sexual problem and expect me to say it's okay. It is not okay. But you can come to me and tell me because I want to know when you're struggling because I'm going to walk with you in it. You don't want a guy telling you it's okay, man. You don't. So don't do it to some other guy. 
What sexual temptation is in your head tonight that you need to speak out loud and then run like heck from? What is it? The story tonight also helps us see David's incredible respect for the anointed king. Twice David was within striking distance of killing Saul. Saul had no idea David was there in either case. And David's men were saying, kill him. He deserves it. They're pushing him. He said, man, this guy deserves it. But in both situations, David held a firm line with his men. David said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David accepted that God chose Saul and God chose him. And it was God who would make the decision of when and how each man would be placed in office and removed from office. David knew that if he murdered Saul, he would set up a violent precedent that would validate murder as a way to remove a king. He knew that only God should make that decision through whatever means he saw fit. David showed incredible self-control that helped him know that while they lived in a very violent culture, this was not the way to handle a change in leadership. It's a really good message for Christians that reflects what Jesus modeled as well, you guys. Last year through that political season, that was a very, very rough season. Political leaders will come and go. The civil laws need to be followed and respected as well as the leaders that come into office. That's what Christian men do. Christians show great self-control and they reflect their faith in God's sovereignty when we vote and then follow the process and let it take its due course. And if we don't like the process and we want to change it, then follow the laws and change it and fully participate with passion and change it and then respect the process and the leaders that that process produces. That's what we do. Christian men's trust in the sovereignty in God and let the rule of law run its course because God is in control. Another application from this text, I believe, comes from reflecting the idea of justice. David had every right to seek justice for the poor treatment that he was receiving from Saul. And in that time, killing an enemy was a common way to get justice. These were, this was normal. It was a brutal society. This is not common now. When I feel I have been unjust, unjustly treated, what we do now, what I do, is gossip and slander. I tell others I've been hurt by another person so I can undermine their character and others feel sorry for me. I don't think I'm alone in this. I see this well disguised and overutilized in the Christian community. Paul says in Romans 1 that slander and gossip are a result of God letting the depra depravity of man, our minds run its course. When we start getting deprived and depraved in our thinking, God just says, I'm going to let that run its course a little bit and watch you slander and gossip, and you will. Gossip in the church is an attack on the people God has chosen to bring his gospel to the world. Each Christian, when they receive Jesus as their Savior, are anointed by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that anointed David when he was declared king. This anointing of the Holy Spirit sets us apart from the people in the world. In fact, we are holy. That's what holy means, set apart. So we're set apart. And who do we follow? Messiah. The Messiah means anointed one. Holy people set apart, anointed by the Holy Spirit, following an anointed Messiah. Wow. Therefore, when we gossip about fellow Christians, we're attacking and tearing down the very people God set in place to do his work. Just as David refrained from killing the anointed king that God had put in place, we are called to exercise self-control by refraining from any gossip or slander about another Christian brother or sister. 
Men, this is one of the key reasons we require confidentiality in heart of a man. In our groups, we share very deeply personal information. We're in close quarters with each other, and we have to hold things confidential to keep trust among the brothers. What have you been ta- who have you been talking about recently that's a Christian brother or sister? Who have you been talking about behind their back? One practical way to break this happen is to confess directly to the brother or sister you've been talking about. Confessing jealousy and gossip is very hard to do, and it's very painful, but it is a powerful deterrent. Another way we can help each other is to not participate in gossip. If I'm telling you something that belittles another brother, you can kindly respond to me by saying, hey, did you get permission to tell me that? And if you see me start to waffle, which I probably will, you can just say, hey, maybe we should not talk about that right now. Let me off the hook, right? There's another way that's even simpler. When I start talking about somebody that I shouldn't be talking about, just change the subject. Just change the subject. Whatever way you choose, if everyone agreed to follow this play, I'm convinced that among men we would see a dramatic increase in our friendships because we'd trust each other. We would, you guys. When you know the other guy's not going to talk about you behind your back, don't you trust a guy like that? You do. It feels really good. Confidentiality and self-control foster incredible trust and unity among men. David showed incredible respect for God and his sovereign plan by refraining from killing Saul. We have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us to empower our ability to refrain from gossip and slander. We can do it. The Holy Spirit's inside of us. And we can even go further than that. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's powerful. We have that same Holy Spirit that we can go that far. We can go past gossip, and we can pray for the guy that we're mad at, and we can love them, and we can help them, and we can serve them. Jesus says, you've got that power in you, that Holy Spirit in you. It can do that. You can be way past gossip. You can go to the other side of that. It's in you. Got that power. Let me close. When I got home from my first Promise Keepers, 31 years ago, I made a significant change in how I treated Susie, and I got on a path to work with other men to study together to be godly husbands and fathers. 31 years ago, I was doing this exact same thing. (laughs) Feels so good. 18 days ago, I celebrated 13 years of marriage. 33 years of marriage. Thank you, Kyle. (laughs) I felt Kyle pointing. I'm like, wait. 18 days, 33 years of marriage, 33 years of marriage. And I think if Susie were here, she would give me a better score than I got 31 years ago. I'm pretty sure I would. I know it's not an A, and I'm not looking for an A, but I was getting an F, and I think I moved up a little bit, you guys. But it's because I spent 31 years doing this. Literally every year I have been in some kind of a group with men that I could talk to and be with and study with in God's word, that I could always be around other men and say, man, I stubbed my toe yesterday. I stubbed my toe yesterday. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I went there and have another brother go, yeah, that was pretty stupid, Bill. Yeah, not, not going to defend you. What do you need from me? Just needed to tell you I did it. Thanks. Appreciate it. So, guys, this is what it's all about. Heart of Man was birthed from that first moment when God helped me see that evil in my heart. That's where this came from was when I saw that, I said, man, I can never not keep looking at that, and I hope I can help other men see that. 
I've been running to God just as David did since that day. And I continue to run to God for help because I know with certainty I absolutely cannot defeat defeat the evil that's in my heart. There is no way I can, but I can do it with Jesus. And I'm praying you guys will continue to join me and we'll work together to fight this evil in our hearts and we'll run towards him together. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I love these brothers. I love being in this room with these guys because I know together we're running towards you, Jesus. And I know when I'm by myself, I'm hiding and I'm getting in a lot of problems and the evil in my heart is winning. Lord, protect us from the evil one. Lord, help us stay together and work together and move towards Jesus, not as role models for each other, but to help push each other towards him. Jesus, you're the only one we should follow. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're the one that saves. Lord, help us follow you, Lord. And you said, when we're afraid of losing you and afraid to move away from you, you will send a band of angels, your angel. Your angels will surround us, Lord, and protect us and guide us and watch over us, Lord. So, Lord, that's what we want. That's what we need, Lord. I pray for each man tonight that we'll confess our lies, we'll confess our anger, we'll confess our lust before we go to bed, and we'll beg you for forgiveness and call it what it is and then wake up in the morning and run towards you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. 